At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? Well, good morning. It's good to see you here, both in person, those of you watching online. We're grateful that you have joined us for worship today. Now, I want to begin by referencing someone that you may have heard, perhaps you have read. In the history of fictional writing, there have been few novelists who have been able to capture the depths of the human soul. His name is Fyodor Dostoevsky. Now, you might say, well, wow, that's going back a few years. The reality is, over the course of 150 years uh, since the man passed away, we have been able to reference his work again and again and again because of its tremendous honesty, its gut-level honesty, and its complexity. Now, for those of you who don't know who Dostoevsky is, he is the author of the rather small book, Crime and Punishment, another book called The Idiot, and then a book called The Brothers Karamazov. Those are typically considered in literary circles to be among the richest literature ever written. Now, you see, what Dostoevsky communicated with great detail were the highs and the lows of what it means to be a follower of Christ, of the journey of faith. He talked about the temptations, he talked about the trials, and he talked about the struggle. All of those things were real. Now, he could write about those things because he himself was a believer. And Dostoevsky is someone that we can learn from today. Some 150 years after his passing, we can learn from him today because he knows how to engage with one specific concept because he understood it well, the concept and the reality of suffering. In his most prominent work, as I mentioned a moment ago, Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky wrote these words. He says, pain and suffering are always inevitable for a large intelligence and a deep heart. He said, the really great men must, I think, have sadness on earth. You see, those words are not only a thought-provoking idea or quote most of the most of us, when we hear those words, when we consider what Dostoevsky is saying in that quote, we'd say, yeah, I don't want any part of that. Most of us will run from suffering. Nobody wants to suffer. Nobody jumps in the line that says suffering over the banner, over the top of the line, and like, hey, sign me up for that. We don't choose suffering, whether it is mental suffering, physical suffering, emotional suffering, nobody signs up for that. And yet, and yet suffering is a very real thing in our lives. And that's why Jesus addresses it head on in Matthew's gospel. 
We're going to turn there in just a moment, but before we do, let's pray. Gracious God, as we turn to your word and we engage with it deeply, we are confronted with difficult topics. Today, God, we confess that we're looking at one of those difficult topics. We're engaging with and putting our hearts and our minds open before you and before your word as we consider the idea of suffering. God, you know that we need to hear from you in this area. Every single person in this room has gone through a season of suffering, and if they haven't, they will. This is the common human experience, and so in the midst of that, God, would you minister to our hearts today? Would you meet with us and bring us the endurance, the comfort, the strength that we need? God, we're going to turn to your word now, and God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see the truth that's on its pages. Give us ears to hear this truth, and then the courage that it will take to live out what your word teaches us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are turning to a text that has Jesus sitting on the Mount of Olives, and he's describing a season of suffering that is coming for God's people. He sits down with his friends and he says, hey, I want to tell you a story. I want you to know what this suffering is going to look like. So, his words are going to be found in Matthew's gospel. So, let's grab our Bibles and turn together to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to be picking it up at verse 15 and then reading segments of it throughout the morning. So, let's begin with Matthew chapter 24. You're going to find that on page 829 uh, in your ESV Bible as you read along. Matthew chapter 24 beginning at verse 15. Hear the words of Jesus. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. I'm going to pause right there. The description that Jesus offers right there is filled with a lot of imagery, but it included in there some tragedy, a little suffering, and a little sadness mixed in for good measure. It's quite a recipe, isn't it? Overall, what we just read is incredibly intense, and these words help us to see the first truth that we're going to look at today, that you and I are going to consider as God's people, and that is that we should know that suffering will come. Believers should know that suffering will, in fact, come. You see, what Jesus did in this portion of his sermon is paint a painful and powerful picture of the fall of Jerusalem. 
What he's telling us is that this is the fall of Jerusalem. And so he provides wisdom for his people in the face of the destruction that is prophesied in the Old Testament book of Daniel. And make no mistake about it, as you can see from the text, it is going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible. What Jesus sees and what he shares is the coming judgment of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And specifically, the fate of the temple and the fate of Jerusalem. And that's why the text begins with the phrase, the abomination of desolation. You say, well, what does that mean? That's kind of a strange term. That term finds its roots in the Old Testament book of Daniel, as you see. A number of times you see it. You see it in Daniel 8, Daniel 9, uh, chapter 11, chapter 12, but I want to highlight chapter 11 because it is the most vivid picture of what we're talking about today. Here's what it says in Daniel chapter 11. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and shall take action. You see, the images revealed in Daniel detail the desecration and the destruction that took place when Antiochus Epiphanes set up an altar to Zeus. Think about that. He then sacrificed swine on that altar. He turned portions of the temple into a brothel and took slaves of the Jewish people. It was vile and it was ugly stuff that was happening in this time period in the context under Antiochus' leadership. So fast forward a few hundred years and Jesus uses the term the abomination of desolation. And so it brings to mind the thoughts of desecration. It brings to mind the thoughts of destruction. It brings to mind the thoughts of suffering of God's people. That's what happened then. And Jesus is saying that is what's on the horizon. He says, I don't want you to be deceived. These things must happen before Christ returns. And so at the fall of Jerusalem, there will be an unimaginable anguish. The days bring similar chaos and pain and destruction of what was seen under the previous leadership some 200 years earlier. And what Jesus is telling his disciples in this moment and what you see in verses 17 through 20 are a few descriptions of, hey, here's here's what you need to know is coming. You're going to need to flee to the mountains. You're not going to be able to stay here. You're going to have to flee. You're not going to be able to turn back to grab your cloak. You've got to go. There is a sense of urgency in this warning. Alas, for women who are pregnant, it is not going to be easy. Your flight may may be in winter or on the Sabbath. You don't want it to be in those seasons because the weather is treacherous for travel. In each of those warnings there is urgency. In each of those warnings, there is this kind of sense of there is an immediate trouble on the horizon. And this trouble anticipates what's ahead in the end times. You see, what we can learn from this is that God's people are called to understand we have near and long-term realities. 
We have to look at both. We oftentimes live in the immediate and forget the distant. We're called to do both. Believers are called to enter into it in both the near and the long term. Now this morning, I want us to hear the story of a dear friend. It's a story of someone in our church family who has been on an incredibly difficult journey. Let's watch her story together. Well, joining us today is uh, a good friend and sister in Christ, uh, Jean Ruland. Jean, it is good to see you. Thank you for uh, spending a few minutes here in this kind of strange COVID time uh, where we have to do things a little bit different than we normally would. And uh, it's, it's great to see you today. Thank you. Well, Gene, you have been uh, on a journey, and it is uh, a journey that you certainly wouldn't have chosen for yourself. Uh, and I'm wondering if you'd be willing to, to share a little bit of your story with our church family. Sure. Um, it was uh, the end of November, uh, sorry, end of March of uh, 19, and I had gone into the doctor for my annual physical. And I had been feeling kind of weak, and I mentioned it to the doctor just in passing that, uh, you know, things weren't like I thought they should be, but, you know, didn't think too much of it. The next day, I'm preparing for a memorial service at the church when I get a call, a frantic call from a doctor I didn't know, and he said, um, you have to get to Troy Beaumont right away or you're going to bleed out. You have leukemia. And I was like, uh, What? You've got the wrong person. So I made a bunch of phone calls, grabbed my husband. We went to the hospital. I said, I'm pretty sure you have the wrong person. I'm just fine. And they drew some more blood, and they confirmed that, yes, indeed, I had uh, leukemia. So ironically, on April 1st, April Fool's Day, uh, I checked into the hospital and started my treatments. And it was uh, many trips to the hospital for uh, infusions and injections and chemo and uh, the losing of the hair and the whole nine yards. Um, and around about August of 19, my mother, who was 86 at the time, started to fail in her health. I think the stress of me being in the midst of cancer treatment was stressing her out and her health was failing. And I had to put her in hospice. And uh, my brother lives in Seattle. And I said, you got to get your get get out here and so he flew out um after he came she started to rally and she uh turned around health wise and um by christmas of uh, 19 we were celebrating together and things were good uh by christmas of 19 my hospital treatments were done and i was now doing uh weekly uh chemo pills and monthly injections, and the plan was that I would continue this until um, November of 21, and that after that, that my my cancer would be eradicated and life would be good, and I'd go on my happy way. Well, in January of this year, a new test became available that allowed them to uh, check my bone marrow on a different level to see if there were any cancer cells. The hopes being that the treatment I was on was eradicating all the cancer cells and that I didn't need any further treatment. Well, they found more cancer cells in my bone marrow and they sent me off to um, 
a place down in Detroit to talk about a bone marrow transplant. Well, when we had initially talked to the transplant doctor, he had told us the, the risks and the difficulties associated with the transplant, mainly that the survival rate is not 100%, uh, and the survival rates were anywhere from 30 to 70%, and I didn't love those odds. And back when we first heard about it, I was freaking out. Like, I, I don't want my life cut short. I have a mother that I'm taking care of. I don't want to have to deal with this. Well, this time around, um, when they said that I needed this transplant, I thought, okay, well, uh, God's in control of this one. I, I don't need to worry about this. Um, curiously, at that time, my mother's health started to fail again. And I had to put her in hospice at the beginning of February. And um, at this point, uh, she has days to live. And so there I find myself um, soon to say goodbye to my mother and soon to have a bone marrow transplant. And that's where I currently am. Wow. Jean, you know, for those of us who worked with you or knew you beforehand, you were always a very active person always about serving others and and so you go on this journey and it really is one of suffering uh you have you have suffered uh, a loss of a lot of things in your experience how, how is god at work in you uh and and even through you through your suffering in may of 19 when we first went to visit the uh, bone marrow transplant doctor. Uh, he explained everything, what would happen, what the percentages of success were. I came home that day sobbing. And I remember just, I don't want to die, Lord. I This does not sound like a good option. And Lord, I just, please know. I, especially with my mother in frail health, like, no, Lord, I can't help me. I spent a lot of time at that point in uh, the scriptures, um, in Psalms with uh, David. And, you know, he's running away from his father-in-law, hiding in caves and thinking, well, I don't at least have that journey I'm on. But uh, it, was, it was a very difficult time. And when they told me, well, you don't need a bone marrow transplant at this point, I was just praising God and thanking him that uh, he had spared me that. And I was so very grateful. You know, that to me felt like more time that I could be with my mother and family. Well, this time around, beginning of February, when I got the call saying, well, you do need a bone marrow transplant. Over that year and a half or so, the Lord had really worked on my heart, telling me that it's okay. I'm not in control anyway. And... I can just lay all my cares at his feet. And the desert that I was walking through was for a purpose, to strengthen me, to bring me closer into his arms. And any suffering that I've gone through has just driven me into his arms because I can't do anything about it. I think of the, the saying, God only gives you what you can, uh, doesn't give you more than you can handle. And I think, well, I don't know about that, but when God gives me more than I can handle, I just run into his arms because I can't handle it. And I know that. And I, I have a peace that transcends all understanding right now. 
and I'm so very grateful for that. And even with my mother, you know, days away from entering into her glory, into God's glory, um, I have peace with that too. And I'm so grateful for the time that he's given me and even just being out of the hospital right now so that I can be with her. My siblings will be coming in this, uh, today so that we can all be there together to say goodbye. How awesome is it that I'm not in the hospital and I can say goodbye. And I'm so very grateful for every step of this journey. Don't you guys love Jean's heart in the midst of what she's facing? Now I want to give you a quick update. Uh, we recorded that on Thursday. And uh, Jean, her siblings were able to arrive and Jean's mom passed away yesterday. And so the suffering... Uh, that she's experiencing continues. Church, the reality is that we live in a fallen and broken world that is filled with suffering. The difference for the Christ follower, the challenge for believers, as Gene has just helped us see, is that we can face that suffering with peace and with hope in the midst of what we're walking in the face of what we are experiencing personally. Even when the situation is bleak, when the situation is dark, and the long-term outlook is dire, we can trust in our God because our suffering leads to something. It leads specifically to our spiritual growth. Now, here's why I know that. Because of what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans. He says, we rejoice. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. I love that about Jean's testimony. You hear what she walked and where she was two years ago and how she is and where she is now. Her suffering has produced endurance in her life. And endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit who has been given to believers. So in the face of suffering, Christ followers can, and not only can, but and we should bring our disappointment, bring our discouragement directly to God. We bring it directly to God. We can, in fact, surrender it all to Him because He's in the process of transforming us. He's in the process of transforming the believer. What is birthed in suffering, as Paul says, leads to our endurance. And this endurance builds character in our lives, and this character then produces a genuine and authentic hope that's poured out and filled by the Holy Spirit. Church family, there is actually a tremendous amount of beauty that God works in the midst of the experience of our suffering. The Apostle Paul's words encourage you and me to trust the process. You say, well, pastor, I don't want to trust the process. That sounds painful. It sounds hard. It is hard. And yet he encourages us to trust the process because of the very goodness of God. 
the goodness of God, and you and I can trust Him because we can trust in His sovereignty. You and I can trust the sovereignty of our God. Let's look back at our text, Matthew 24, verse 22. And if those days had not been cut short, remember He's speaking of the the coming struggle. No human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. You see, as Jesus is describing the the siege that is to come, He wanted His people to know that you can, in fact, trust in His character. You can trust in Him, in His sovereign control. God is going to shorten the days of the war to protect His chosen from ultimate destruction and despair. Now, the battle that He speaks of would be painful. The battle that Christ is foreshadowing in this text would be long and it would be brutal, and yet the destruction that included men and women and children was significant. You'd say, well, wait a minute, where was God in that? I mean, Josephus, the historian, explains that there's over 100,000 who perished in this this struggle when Jerusalem fell. You'd say, well, where was God in the midst of that? God was still sovereign. Sovereign. But God's people failed to heed the warnings. They failed to trust in His sovereignty. Now, many of you guys know I grew up on the other side of the state. I grew up in a little town called Ludington. And as a town on Michigan's coast, on the coast of Lake Michigan, I often heard this phrase growing up when I was a little boy. It was, red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning... Sailor's warning. It's sailor lingo. It gives us some guidance. It's not just a cute little phrase. The reality is the sky tells a story. The sky gives us a warning. If you are a boater, if you're going out on the lake, the sky gives you guidance. Here's what it means. When the sky is red in the evening, the setting sun's light shines through a high concentration of dust particles. And what that indicates is that there is a high pressure and that there is stable weather in that space. That's the sun, excuse me, that is the red in the evening. When you see the red sky in the morning, it often means that the high pressure has passed and that the air has water content in it. And that means the storms. Storms are likely to follow. So like sailors... God's people, we are to heed the warnings that we are given. You'd say, well, wait a minute, what are our warnings? The warnings are given in God's Word. The guidance you and I get as Christ followers is given to us in the Word. And if Scripture is unclear in a specific specific situation, do you guys know what we're supposed to do then? We pray. We come to our God and we humble ourselves and we pray The Apostle Paul also guides us here. Here's what he said to the church in Philippi. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests, let what's on your heart, be made known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, which surpasses all understanding in the ESV translation, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Gene referenced that. 
Did you catch that? Church, when we submit our hearts and our minds in prayer, what we are in fact practicing in that moment is our trust in the sovereignty of God. When we pray, we are saying, I don't have the strength, I don't have enough, but you do. We are trusting in the sovereignty of our God. Now, church, let's look at the last portion of our text. Let's pick it up at verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead you astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go. If they say, look, he is in the inner room, do not believe. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as is the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there will be vultures that will gather. Jesus is providing his followers another warning. A new wave of rebellion is going to come against God's people, in the name of the living God. He's saying you will be faced with false messiahs. Men who claim to be the Christ, and yet they're liars. They are out to deceive. Jesus exhorts his followers, don't fall for this deception. Don't do it. Don't be led astray. You say, well, wait a second. What about those signs and wonders? I mean, that has to be pretty cool. The reality is they don't necessarily come from the hand of God. These things have been used by false prophets for generations. Be aware. Do not be led astray. As far back as our faith heritage is Moses. You go all the way back there, God's people have been warned against following this kind of temptation. Listen to the words from Deuteronomy chapter 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall listen to the words of the prophet or the dreamer. You shall not listen to the words of the prophet or the dreamer of those dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. False teachings, false signs are clear distractions away from the reality of what God has for His people in the final days. Instead of being distracted by those things, His return will not be in question. As lightning shines, His return will be bold, it will be brilliant, and it will be glorious. There will be victory and vindication for Jesus, the Messiah, and His return will be unmistakable. So when suffering comes, God's people are called to depend and trust in God's sovereignty. And in the midst of difficulty, we can have hope because we will see that Jesus' return will be unmistakable. It'll be unmistakable. Now, the reason this is so important is because in our 
social media age. False Christs and false prophets continue to appear in our world, and now they have more access to you and to me. They can come into the palm of your hand in a minute. Their words of spiritual insight might seem impressive, and yet they always point you away from the reality of the gospel. Their manipulative signs, their manipulative teachings are simply distractions. And those distractions pull you away from the reality of who God is, from the truth of His Word. In a world where teachers and sermons and writings are this close, God calls us to center our attention upon Him and upon following His Word. Now, this leads me to ask a tough question. It's an important question for every single person here today. What pastors, what Christian leaders are you listening to? Do they proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ above all else? Or are they speaking about politics and cultural issues? Jesus says, don't be led astray. Those are distractions. Focus upon the gospel, the centrality of the gospel. That's what our faith is rooted in. So what you read, what you see, they should nurture your faith. They should develop your faith in Christ. In Christ. What you read should align with biblical Christianity. It should align with historic Christianity. It should never distract from the gospel. You see, church family, when we preach the Old Testament, we recognize that the Old Testament is pointing to a Messiah who would come. And then when we dig into the New Testament, we're unpacking the story of the Messiah who did come and how that message has been carried out to the world. That's the story. That's what our faith is rooted in. It's the gospel. So church, the words that you and I read from Jesus today offer a couple of really important distinctions. We are to consider the near future what we're living in, what's on the immediate horizon. That's what he was saying to the original audience. But he also has a mind for the eternal future. It's the now and what's coming ahead, the not yet. And I want us to make not not even the smallest mistake in understanding that. Jesus cares about both, what's going on in your life now and what is going on in the future. The truth is, suffering will come to believers. And yet, in the face of that suffering, we are called to identify with the one who suffered for you, Jesus. Jesus, who suffered for you, he paid a penalty that you could not pay. When he spared his life sacrificially on the cross, that was suffering. 
and he did it because he loves you. He loves you and he wants to redeem you and draw you back into a right relationship with the Father. And it's faith in him that sustains us in the midst of our suffering. That's why Matthew 24 is such an important passage for trying to understand these times. Trying to understand what you and I are facing in our world. I believe there's a theologian that captures this so well. His name is George Eldon Ladd. And he said, the true victory consists of conquering the beast by loyalty to Christ unto death. It's loyalty to Jesus that gives you and me a true source of hope in our world today and in the world to come. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.